Well, this has been a fun time for me to be up here this week and uh, studying and teaching God's Word, talking about our identity in Christ and the truth that sets us free. Uh, I have a radio ministry. If you have appreciated this teaching, you'd like to hear some of my teaching uh, on an ongoing basis. Uh, it's called Truth That Changes Lives. It's listened to in all 50 states and 150 countries uh, in the world. You can access it uh, through oneplace.com. So you can go online to oneplace.com, which I would recommend. That's a great site because virtually every one of your favorite Bible teachers is on that hub, one, oneplace.com. And, there, you know, we're on the radio in L.A., at KKLA, if you live down there and you listen uh, we're on the radio there, but it only comes on when that show comes on. You go to oneplace.com, you can listen to it anytime you want to listen to it. And, you know, what I do in my car, I just Bluetooth my phone into it and go to, and then I can listen to any one of my favorite, you know, Bible teachers. I've got people that I really like listening to. Also on podcast, if you listening listen to podcasts, that's what you prefer to do it. It's Truth That Changes Lives, and it's podcast through all the different podcast venues that come out. So, um, we have a backlog of teaching. I just, because in my, at my church, I just teach through books of the Bible. So uh, right now we're in Philippians. I was listening to it. I was walking around the lake today and I realized I did that study in 2009. So I taught through Philippians in 2009. I'm listening to, I'm listening to myself saying, man, that guy's great. That's good insight. Oh, it's me. <laughs> Uh, and it just started, so it's uh, in Philippians chapter 1. So if you want to jump into uh, Truth That Changes Lives, it's going through the book of Philippians, talking about joy. Um, so tonight, we're, what we're doing is we're kind of trying to apply or at least come up with a strategy of application for what we've been talking about. So we started off Sunday night talking about how our identity determines our destiny. And we looked at Romans chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul, at the end of Romans chapter 5, compares and contrasts Adam and Christ. And he talks about how every person comes into this world with a spiritual identity in Adam. And so what's true about Adam gets passed on to us. And so we come into this world dead in trespasses and trespasses and sins and under condemnation because of our spiritual connection to Adam. But when we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ... Our spiritual identity is transformed from Adam into Christ. And just as we came into this world inheriting everything that was true in Adam, once we come into Christ, we inherit everything that's true in Christ. So we have a brand new spiritual identity. And the Apostle Paul uses that phrasing, in Christ, about 170 times in the New Testament. So it really describes who we are. We're in Christ and Christ is in us. And so the last several nights we've unpacked, well, what does that mean? So we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and talked about how we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then we looked at Romans and Galatians and talked about how we're in Ephesians, we're co-crucified, co-resurrected, and co-seated with Christ. We're united with Christ in his death, resurrection, ascension, and seating. And then last night we looked at Romans chapter 8 and talked about how we are because we're in Christ, we're in the Spirit, and so now the Spirit of Christ lives in us, and the work and operation of the Spirit is available to us to transform our lives. So tonight, I want to try to make that bridge between these great spiritual truths to actually living a transformed life. I, uh, I shared with you uh, a little bit myself. I talked about how um, I have uh, in... This, this diagnostic test called the Strength Finders that looks at your, your basic strength. My top strength is positivity. My second strength is relator. And my third strength is strategic. And what strategic means is this comes, this comes up a lot of times when I'm in staff meetings. We're in staff meetings and we're talking about like what we want to do as a church, what our vision is or what our goals are. And my mind starts tracking in terms of, okay, if this is where we are and this is where we want to be, this is what we need to do to get there. These are steps to get there. And I realize I actually operate that way in my discipling of people and in my pastoral counseling. So if you came in for pastoral counseling and we we're talking and I start asking you about the issue and you kind of share with me the issue that you're struggling with, and then I would ask you some more questions and kind of find out where you are. And at one point I'd say, well, if you could pray a prayer and God would do whatever 
you wanted him to do, what would you want him to do? And then you'd tell me that, and I'd say, okay, so, and I'd repeat it back to you. So it sounds like you're here, and this is where you want to be, so we got to figure out how to go from here to here. And then I would think of maybe some scriptural steps that might help you go from here to there. So tonight, I want to give you a five-step strategy, a five-step strategy for taking this truth of who we are in Christ to actually becoming a reality in the way we live our lives. So this teaching I'm, I'm calling Possessing Your Position. Possessing Your Position. Because every one of us, the very moment we came to Christ, received a new position in Christ. But we got to possess it if it's going to make a difference in the way we live our lives. So let me pray. Father, I, I pray that you would uh, help me uh, to teach the, the best that I can be as a teacher, the best that I can do in, in explaining these truths from your word. And even beyond that, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each person with, with your message. And I pray, Father, that you'd change lives, that we'd be people who, who more than just kind of know the truth, we're actually set free by it. We're transformed by it. We become more like Christ and live uh, Christ-radiating lives and shine our light and share the message of Jesus and and, and manifest the fruit of the Spirit and experience all that you want to do in, in our lives, Holy Spirit. Produce that in us and help us receive from the Word tonight what we need to, to be doers and uh, to, to experience great fruit in our lives. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we're going to be looking at Romans 6 to chapter 7, verse 6. Romans 6, 1 to chapter 7, verse 6, because I think there are five key ideas that Paul develops that takes us from what's true to what's actually changing our lives. So it's a five-step strategy, and here's the first step in the strategy. We need to know the truth. We need to know the truth. Jesus said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you're truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But if you don't know the truth, it's not setting you free. So you've got to know the truth. And let's see how that's developed here in Romans chapter 6, starting verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live at it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin." So there in that passage, Paul twice talks about what we know, and the content of what we know in Romans 6 is that we died with Christ and we've been raised up with Christ. We share in Christ's death, we share in Christ's resurrection. And baptism is this great act, the symbolic act that represents being buried with Christ and being raised up with Christ. And what Paul is talking about there is these are spiritual truths that we know, and, and they, they're life-changing because he says... Knowing this, that uh, because we've been crucified with, with Christ, that we're no longer under the control of sin. Having died with Christ, having been raised up with Christ, we've actually been set free from the reign and kingship of sin over our lives. So knowing the truth is a necessary step for being set free by the truth. Now, this is, this is a principle that's not only true in Romans 6, it's true of all the other things that we talked about this past week. So this is some of the things that we know based upon what scriptures that we've looked at. So we know that we died with Christ. We know that we've been raised up with Christ. We know that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We, we know that we were ascended with Christ and seated, and so we share in Christ's authority being seated in the heavenlies. We know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We know that the full requirement of the law has been fulfilled within us. We know that sin's power was broken. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. 
We know that because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, we actually belong to Christ. We know that the Spirit who lives in us is the Spirit of resurrection, and He's going to produce resurrection life in our bodies right now. We know we're under obligation, and we can, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. We know that we are sons of God. We have the spirit of adoption living inside of us. We know that we have intimacy with the Father. We know we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. There's a lot that we know. There's a lot that we know. And, and, and Paul is saying and making appeal to us to go back to what we know. In fact, that's a great spiritual exercise um, that I would recommend to you as part of your devotions is sometimes just to say, what, what do I know to be true about me? And just write those truths down and, and let your mind be renewed on what's actually true about you in Christ. And just write them down and, and then speak them back to God in prayer because that knowledge then, I, I mentioned this, it actually creates new neural pathways. It's amazing what we're, what we're finding out about the brain these days because we're, we're finding out that when we, when we think and experience things, there are pathways that are created in our, in, our, in our brain, and those pathways then are retrieved and, and they re, are reinforced, and that can work positively or it can work negatively. And it's really just what the Bible talks about when it talks about renewing your mind. We can actually renew our minds so that we think God's thoughts after Him and so that we think scriptural truths and the more we think and meditate and reflect upon scriptural truths that we know those things that knowledge becomes conviction and then that conviction becomes a lifestyle choice so the first step in this strategy is to know what's really true about us it's kind of like uh, when you learn to drive when I was in high school, we first took a course called driver education. In driver education, you learn about driving. You learn the rules of driving so that you could pass a driving test. You, you learn the mechanics of driving. You learn that you're supposed to put your hands you know, in a certain place on the wheel. And you learn some things about how you're supposed to drive. There was this Disney movie with Goofy who talked about, oh, hi, boys and girls. Uh, make sure you get the big picture and make sure they see you and keep your eyes moving and all these different things. I mean, you know, it, it was driver education. And they also showed you those movies about, you know, all those accidents that happened from reckless driving, trying to scare you not into being a reckless driver. Driver education was just getting information. But then you took another class called driver training. And driver training actually got into a car. Driver training, you actually sit down, put the seat belt on, put the key in the ignition, put your hands on the steering wheel, put it into gear, and you took off, and you were actually driving. But before you were actually driving, you learned a bunch of stuff about what driving was all about. That's the way the Christian life is. We don't know how to drive our lives as Christians unless we learn what's true about us in Christ. So you start with what's true, you start with what you know, and you base your faith on what God says is true, because the truest thing about you is what God says is true. So Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you know that you've died with Christ, you know you've been raised up with Christ, you know you've been set free from sin, and that's, that's the beginning of the transformation process. You've got to know the truth. Here's the second step in this five-step strategy. We need to believe and appropriate the truth for ourselves. We need to believe and appropriate the truth for ourselves. The very first command in the book of Romans. Now think about this. For um, five and a half chapters, Paul is writing truth, and he is yet to give, an, to give one single command. Romans chapter 1, no commands. Romans chapter 2, no commands. Romans chapter 3, no commands. Romans chapter 4, no commands. Romans chapter 5, no commands. Romans chapter 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, no commands. First 11, the first command in the book of Romans. Just that in itself, if you are doing kind of Bible observation, would kind of stand out to you like, oh, that's significant. 
So whatever this command is must be a pretty important command. And this is the command in Romans 6.11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first command in the book of Romans. Some Bible translations have it in the same way, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Others have it in the same way, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The, the, word, the Greek word is legizomai. And just if you take the word legizomai, logizomai, what maybe is an English word that we kind of get from that? Log. Logos, logic. Yeah. It's a word that has to do with consider, a brainy word, a thought word, a, 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 an intellectual reasoned out word. It's actually a term that's used in accounting. It's an accounting term. Here, here's how you would use legizomai. Let's say I'm an accountant and I've been hired to do the inventory in the widget factory. So I go to the widget factory and I count all the widgets. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, no, I wrote 100 down. Why? Because that's how many there were. It's the truth. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 6. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's the truth. Because the truest thing about us is what God says is true. So all Paul is saying here is, you believe what God says is true. You believe what God says is true. But here's the thing. Belief in the Bible... Real belief, real faith in the Bible is more than intellectual assent. It's more than intellectual assent. I was at the gym, this is a couple years ago, and, and the gym I work at has this outdoor pool and jacuzzi, and I'm, I'm sitting in the jacuzzi, and this guy walks out, a young guy, and he looks like he's in great shape, and he looks like he's a swimmer, and he, and he jumps into the pool, and he starts just swimming, you know, and you ever see swimmers when they swim, they just glide, right, and I'm watching him swim, and then he gets out, and I start, start a conversation with him, and I ask him if he's a competitive swimmer, and he, he, he said, no, I play water polo at, at the local university, and I said, oh, we start talking, I said, what do you study there? He said, I study philosophy. I said, really? That's, that's interesting. What are you, what are you studying? And he said, I, I'm studying about this guy named Kierkegaard. I go, man, Kierkegaard was a great guy. I go, Kierkegaard, and I said, you know, Kierkegaard is the guy who is quoted for saying that Christianity is a blind leap of faith. And he goes, yeah, I heard that. I go, but you know, people misunderstood Kierkegaard, when he, what he meant by that. He goes, why? What do you mean? He goes, well, Kierkegaard didn't mean that faith didn't have any facts behind it or faith didn't have any basis behind it. He was reacting to kind of the dogma of his day, and he was kind of saying faith was very, a very experiential thing. So now we're talking about faith. And then I, I, I said, you know, faith in the Bible is, is more than just intellectual assent. And he goes, really? And I, I go, yeah. I go, let me illustrate it. And there was this bench, like over here, sitting there. I go, you see that bench? And, I, and he said, yeah. I said, what if I told you that bench was manufactured from the, the finest wood and steel, and it goes through all types of uh, evaluation, and they test that bench, and it will hold the weight of a 400-pound person. He said, Shop. well, I'd, he goes, yeah, that sounds legitimate to me. And I said, how much do you weigh? He goes, I weigh about 200 pounds. I said, do you think that bench would hold you if you sat on it? And he said, yeah. I, I go, do you believe that? Do you believe that bench would hold you if you sat on it? He goes, yeah, I believe it. I said, no, I don't, I don't think you believe it. He goes, no, I believe it. Now, do you believe, I said, you believe that that bench would hold you if you sat on it? He goes, yes. I go, you don't believe it. He goes, no, I believe it. I go, I don't think you believe that bench will hold you. He goes, yes, I do. And he walks over and he sat down. And then I said, now I think you believe it. I go, that's what belief is in the Bible. And then I said, you know, it's not enough just to know that Jesus lived, Jesus died, even that Jesus rose from the dead. You have to commit your life to him and rely upon him and totally trust in him and surrender to him. 
because belief is personal commitment. So here in Romans chapter 6, Paul says, first command, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He isn't saying intellectually believe that. No, he's saying really trust in that. Consider it to be true for you, not just a biblical truth, but really true for you. Count it true in your life. So you got to start with what you know. you got to know the truth. Secondly, you got to believe and appropriate the truth for yourself. Here's a third step in this five-step strategy. We need to act upon the truth in obedience. We need to act upon the truth in obedience. So I said here in Romans chapter 6, the first command is verse 11. That's actually followed by a few more commands. Verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of your body uh, to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. So Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin. And then he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to obey its evil desires. Don't offer your bodies to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Instead, offer yourself and the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. So he, he's giving a series of commands based upon the truth that he's been teaching. And again, these are the first commands in the book of Romans. So if you step back, you go, wow, all this theology from Romans 1 to Romans 6, verse 10, and now consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey in lust. Don't offer yourselves to sin as instruments of wickedness, but offer yourself as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So he's making a strong push towards obedience. There, there's, a, there's an obedient response to truth. There, there is an obedient response to truth, but you see... We've been trained in Western Christianity to think about just intellectually accepting truth. So we go to church, pastor preaches a great sermon, we listen to it, man, that was a great sermon. Or we listen to it and think, oh, I've heard better sermons. I, heard, I had a guy come up to me one time, <laughs> this will go in that, 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 that book art that I'm going to write, you know, when I retire, of the, you know, just the weird things that happen in the church. I, 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 I was pastoring this church for like five years, and, and somebody came up to me after a sermon, and I know he was trying to be complimentary, so I dealt with him graciously. But he said to me, that was a really good sermon. You know, you're really getting better. <laughs> I'm getting better? What, did I, was I crummy when I first started? I mean, what do you mean? Th thank you, you know. Um, there, there is a sense in which what Paul is saying is that we need to respond to what we receive in here. It's not just give intellectual acceptance to it. It's not just to debate and critique it. It's to put it into practice. It's like James in, in James chapter 1. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Because James says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once that he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that man will be blessed in what he does. The, the, the upshot of what James is saying is the, the word of God's like a mirror, but he goes, some people, like, they get up in the morning, and they look in the mirror, and their hair's all sticking out like this, and they got the crusties in their eye, and they got that white stuff on their teeth, and they look at it. You wouldn't think about someone would see that and then just go away and go face the day looking like that. Because when they look in the mirror and they saw that, what would they do? Oh, they'd brush their hair, they'd wash their face, they'd brush their teeth, because the mirror would expose something for what they were supposed to do. So that's what the Word of God does. The mirror of the Word exposes something we need to do. And when we do it, that's when we're set free, and the law of liberty is operating in our lives. 
So Paul says there's some specific things we need to do. We need to stop the reign of sin in our body. It's a, um, it's a present tense command with a negative action. So he's assuming sin is reigning in our body and we need to stop it. So that's, that's, that's when, when in, in the grammar of the New Testament, present tense commands in the positive are keep on doing something, keep on doing, keep on doing something. Present tense commands in the negative is something is happening and you need to stop it from happening. So stop letting sin reign in your body. It's the old, you know, circles in the back of the four spiritual laws. I remember when I first became a Christian, my brother gave me that four spiritual laws. I, w- I, I finally picked it up and read it, and I read through it. I remember law one, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. I believe that. Law two, man is sinful, separate from God. I believe that. Law three, Jesus Christ, the only provision for man's sin. I believe that. Law four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I've never done that. And then at the bottom, there were these two circles, and one circle had a cross at the center and an S representing self outside the circle. And the other circle had a S at the center and the cross outside. And the question was, which circle represents your life? And I knew I was the circle with the S at the center and the cross outside because I'd never believed in Jesus or asked Jesus to come into my life or confess Jesus as my Savior. I turned the page. If you'd like to ask Christ in your life, and there was the center prayer. I was by myself, and I read the sinner's prayer and prayed to receive Jesus. But I was confronted with the reality, I'm controlling my own life. And I need to surrender and let Jesus control my life. Paul's saying, stop letting sin control your life. So count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? It means I stop living a sin-filled life. And I start living a Christ-filled life. And the assumption, by the way, is that we can do it because of who we are in Christ. See, it's not just a legalistic expectation, do this and just, you know, put, put us under more guilt and shame. No, it's because we've been raised up with Christ. It's because we've been set free from the control of sin in our life that we can make the choice to consider ourselves dead to sin. We can make the choice to count ourselves as alive in Christ Jesus. We can make the choice to stop the reign of sin in our life. And then he says... Um, Don't offer the parts of your body to sin. Stop offering yourself to sin. It's a a worship word. It's a Greek word, peristano, which would mean like this is my offering and I come and bring it to God's altar and I offer it to him. And, And so he says, stop offering your body for the purpose of sin. And then he says, instead, offer your body. And then he adds, by the way, as one who's been made alive from the dead, because you realize who you are, you're a new person in Christ, you have a resurrection life within you, so as a new person in Christ, offer yourself to God and all of your members, that's every way your body can express itself, as instruments of righteousness. Um, that, That word instrument can mean tool, it can mean weapon. And I think that's actually a better translation because I think he's putting it in the context of the spiritual battle. We're in the spiritual battle and God wants to use our body and every parts of our body as an actual weapon for righteousness to advance the kingdom of God and to win the spiritual battle. But it's an action, you see. It's, an, it's, a, it's a point of obedience. This is what Paul's talking about. You've got to first know the truth. You've got to secondly consider the truth to be true for you. And then thirdly, you've got to obey the truth. If, if, I, don't, if I don't obey the truth, then, then it's, it's not setting me free in, in any way. One of my favorite uh, stories, and I, sh- I share this story at my church all the time. I, I repeat myself, but I let people know I'm repeating myself. Even if a pastor doesn't let people know, then you kind of go, does he know that he told that illustration two weeks ago? But if he tells you he's telling it again, he's doing it on purpose. Now, Jesus did that because Jesus used certain stories and he told them in different times and different occasions. So, you know, I'm, I'm on good ground because that's what Jesus did. So one of my favorite stories is about the great Blondin. It's a true story. The great Blondin. 
So I will tell everybody, I go, it's like the great blonde, and people actually start laughing because they know I'm going to tell the story, and everybody at my church has heard me tell it many times. The, the great blonde was an amazing acrobat and tightrope walker. And in the 19th century, he actually traveled the world and did um, just, you can't even imagine things the great Blondin did. There, on one occasion, the great Blondin walked on a tightrope and he had on his back a stove and he had food and he stopped in the middle of the tightrope and put the stove down and lit the stove and, and cooked an omelet, ate the omelet, then put all the stuff back in his backpack and then continued to walk all the way across. So the great Blondin came to the United States. It's a true story. He went to Niagara Falls. He set a tightrope across Niagara Falls and they had a good advanced man, and so all the people came out to, you know, see the great blonde. And then he goes, how many, you know, think that I can walk across Niagara Falls? And about half the crowd raised their hand. And he made a good show of it. He had a balancing pole, and he kind of balanced like this. And at one point, he acted like he almost fell, and then he went all the way across. And then he came back, and everybody cheered. And they said, how many of you think that I could push a wheelbarrow across? And then now about three-quarters of the people raised their hand, and he did the same thing, and he pushed the wheelbarrow across on the tightrope at Niagara Falls, and then he pushed it all the way back. And then he said, how many of you think if someone was in the wheelbarrow, I could push it across? And everybody raised their hand. And they said, okay, I want to volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow. And then everybody put their hand down. <laughs> Finally, a brave soul got out, got in the wheelbarrow, and the great blonde and pushed him out and pushed him back across. So here's the deal. When most of us think about faith, we compare it to answering the great Blondin's question, do you think I could push somebody across in a wheelbarrow? But faith in the Bible is really getting in the wheelbarrow. It's obedience. Faith is obedience. That's why there's no discontinuity about James 2. You know, faith that works is dead. People get all up in arms about that, and it's like, no, because real faith is obedience. Real faith isn't just intellectual consideration. Real faith has intellectual content to it, but that intellectual content is translated to real life. So when Jesus said to people, follow me, they didn't go, yes, I believe I could follow you. What did they do? They followed him. So Paul is saying here, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Oh, I, I, I do that. I consider myself dead to sin and alive, alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he says, and what that means is you stop the reign of sin in your life. You stop presenting yourself to sin as an instrument of righteousness. And you present your life, your whole life, and every part of your life to God to serve God and to live in his righteousness. So... There's, you got to know the truth. you got to consider the truth to be true for you. Then you have to act upon the truth. And um, here's a, a fourth step in the strategy. It's we practice obedience because of the slavery principle. We practice obedience because of the slavery principle. Paul says this in, in um, Romans 6, verses 16 and following. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Sanctification. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about progressive sanctification. That's just a big word meaning becoming more and more like Jesus. How do you become more and more like Jesus? Well, you have to understand and abide by this principle of it's the slavery principle because Paul says it works both ways. Whatever you present yourself to, 
to obey, that will become your master. So if you as a believer say, I, you know, this Christian life is narrow. This Christian life is hard. This Christian life is too demanding. I, I think I'm just going to, you know, just kind of coast. Well, you never coast. No, no one ever coasts. You just get washed down with the tide. I remember one of my old spiritual mentors used to say, you know, any dead fish will float downstream. You, you become a slave of whatever it is you, you, you give yourself to. And it may start with a thought, and then it might become a desire, and then it might become an action, and then it might become a habit, and then it becomes a lifestyle. And I'm telling you, I have been in professional ministry for 40 years, more than 40 years. And I have seen this happen in so many people's lives. People go up like rockets and come down like rocks. Because they didn't, they didn't take heed to this slavery principle. They started making subtle compromises, and then subtle compromises became bigger compromises, and bigger compromises became really big compromises. I, uh, I, I was the pastor of a church where the chairman of the search committee, the guy who I most connected with and got to know and was kind of my, my kind of key connection when I first came to be the pastor, he, after I was there for about three months, came up to me after one of the services and just said, J JP, I just want to let you know I'm not going to be coming to church anymore um, because uh, I'm divorcing my wife and I'm, I'm marrying this gal that I've been having an affair with for a couple years. So just wanted to let you know that's why I won't be here. And then turned around and walked off. I was like, what? I went, wait, wait, wait a minute. What? We, you got to tell me what's going on here. So we got together and met. And he was the chairman of the elder board, taught the most popular Sunday school class at the church, was the chairman of the search committee that got me to come and be the pastor. So maybe that was why the reason everybody was like, you know, whatever. I won't go there. So <laughs> I, I, I sit down and I go, what happened? And he was a, to make a long story short, he was a, a, a professor at a community college. And uh, he, this stu student in his college, which she was a little older, came up and asked him some questions after class. And it was just very, you know, professor student. And then uh, she started hanging out more and they started talking more about stuff that wasn't even about the class. And then they decided to get that cup of coffee outside uh, of uh, the, the, the classroom situation. And then they started sharing about their lives. And they both were in very frustrating marriages. And then they, they kind of commensurated with one another about, you know, how their spouses just weren't meeting their needs. And then one day when he walked her back to his car, she, he gave her a hug. And the next day he gave her a kiss. And the next time they got together, they went to a motel and slept together. And then they had a full-on affair. And then he was divorcing his wife and going to marry her. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the first time he just talking to her as a student and a professor, that it was in his mind, I'm going to compromise all my Christian values, have an affair, and divorce my wife, and no longer be a practicing Christian. Do you think, that was, that's, do you think that's what he was thinking when that happened? No, not at all. But he said something to me in, in my counseling, and I just thought, wow, this was powerful, and it has stuck with me. And this was years ago. He said, JP... The decision I made when we first slept together didn't seem like it was any more of a decision, big decision, than the one I made before that, and the one I'd made before that, and the one I'd made before that. So when would have been the easy... The, the, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you such as is common to man, and with the temptation God is going to provide the way of escape also. So there's a way of escape of temptation. When do you think would have been the easiest time for him to take the way of escape? In the beginning or right before he's about to ha commit infidelity? There you go. So there is a slavery principle 
that happens in the area of sin. When we present ourselves to sin, we progressively become slaves to sin. But, Paul says, this principle works the other way too. And that's how he's trying to tie it into this new life because we've been crucified with Christ, we've been raised up with Christ, we have resurrection life within us, and we can be sanctified if we present ourselves to righteousness, if we present ourselves to obedience, if we ask obedience to be our master, if we make steps of obedience. And we can take small steps, which become bigger steps, which become a habit, which become a lifestyle, and we live righteous lives because of this same principle. That's powerful. That's why I say we can do it. We, we, because Jesus lives in us and we are in Jesus, we can take the steps to become more and more righteous. And it results in sanctification. So what's the, in this strategy, you've got to know the truth. You've got to appropriate the truth for your life. You've got to act upon the truth in obedience. You've got to understand this slavery principle so that you actually present yourself to God as a slave of obedience and righteousness and you develop habits and patterns and disciplines of righteousness in your life. And here's the last step in the strategy. We need to act upon the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we act upon the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now last night I really went into this from Romans 8 because we're in the and we're in Christ, we're in the Spirit, and Romans 8 really begins to talk about this. But Paul actually introduces this idea in Romans chapter 7. Because in Romans 7, 4 through 6, he says this, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. I love that Paul makes this, this truth, and then he, he transitions into Romans 8, because what he's, what he's trying to prevent is us thinking that we can work it out on our own. Just, gosh, we, we know these great things. We were crucified with Christ. We were raised up with Christ. We're in Christ, and Christ is in us. And now all we have to do is just discipline ourselves to go do it. No, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work if you try to do that. Because the power is not in your will. The power is in the Holy Spirit. So yes, you obey, and yes, you even cultivate habits of obedience and a lifestyle of obedience, but all the time you're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're trusting in the Spirit. He's the engine that, that drives the Christian life. My, my neighbor, uh, uh, right across the street, he's an anesthesiologist, and he's a, he's a car collector. And he has this, these, and he has this big garage, and he has this ramp, and he has cars stacked up in it. So he has six cars in there stacked up on these, on these lifts, and then he pulls them out on the weekend, and he drives all of these cars. Um, so let's say I see, I see my neighbor out, and he's got you know, a, a, uh, this, because he has one of these. He has one, this brand-new Maserati, and I see him pushing it. I go, and I come up to him, and I say, hey, you know, what? what is there something wrong? And he goes, no, man, look at this car. And he's sweating. And I go, what, what, what's the problem? He goes, nothing. Isn't this car great? I go, yeah, but why are you pushing? Oh, that's just what you're supposed to do is push, push this car. And I, and I, I say, well, wait a minute. And I, I brought him to the front, and we popped the hood, and I go, you see that? That's an engine. And what that engine does is it actually provides the energy and the power to drive this car. Here, get in. He gets in, we turn the ignition, comes on, put it in a gear, and takes off and goes, wow, I never knew I could do it like this. It's a silly story, but that's what a lot of Christians do. They have this unbelievable identity in Christ, and they're trying to drive the Christian life with their own willpower and self-discipline and ability to try to keep Christian rules. 
And there's no power there. Where's the power? It's in the engine of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who empowers us, who leads us to live the Christian life. He, he, he activates and empowers and fills and directs and guides our Christian experience. If I could quote someone, who happens to be me, by the way. <laughs> I always like to do that. So this is, this is from my book, Facing Goliath. The Apostle Paul is describing the work of the Holy Spirit in different people's lives, and he says that the job of the Holy Spirit is to give us the knowledge of God and to manifest God's presence in our life. In fact, every aspect of Christian growth, discipleship, and service is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives. He is the only one who can empower us to live the Christian life. Consider this short survey of the Spirit's work. The Spirit regenerates us and causes us to be born again, John 3. The Spirit leads us into deeper knowledge of Christ, Ephesians 1. The Spirit guides us into the truth, John 16. The Spirit empowers us to be witnesses for Christ, Acts 1. The Spirit produces His fruit in our lives, Galatians 5. The Spirit gives us victory over the flesh, Romans 8. The Spirit helps us pray, Romans 8, 26. The Spirit gives us spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. The Spirit sets us free from... Uh, selfish desires, Galatians chapter 5. The Spirit transforms us to become more like Christ, 2 Corinthians 3. The Spirit gives us a heart of worship, Ephesians 5. The Spirit makes us bold to speak God's Word, Acts chapter 4. That's just a short survey of all that the Holy Spirit does. So what Paul is saying here in, in Romans chapter 7 is we were made to die to the law because the law couldn't do it. The law is based on performance and human effort. That can't that can't produce the supernatural life of Christ. See, the Christian life is a supernatural life. Only one person ever lived it, Jesus Christ. The only way we live it is that Christ lives it through us. He lives it through us, through His Spirit who indwells us. And He empowers us. And He thinks through our mind and speaks through our mouths and loves through our hearts and lives through our bodies the resurrection life of Jesus. And so Paul says we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that we might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, and we might bear fruit for God, not serving in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. It's in the newness of the Spirit. See, this is what we talked about last night. But at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. We're, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us. But not every Christian lives in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. If I had two large glasses of milk right here, just big, clear glasses of, of cold milk, and I take some Hershey's chocolate syrup, and I squeeze it into each glass, goes down to the bottom. I take a spoon, and I stir this one up. What do I have? Looks like chocolate milk. If I was to drink it, what would it taste like? Chocolate milk. This one, same amount of syrup, but just went down to the bottom. If you looked at it, what would it look like? Milk. If you drank it, what would it taste like? Milk. But it has the same syrup in it. Well, what's happened? See, this one, the syrup hasn't permeated the milk, hasn't influenced the milk, hasn't transformed the milk to be chocolate milk, but the syrup's in the glass. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit, but not every Christian's filled with the Spirit. See, when the Spirit is stirred up in our lives, He produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He empowers us to obey God's law. He reproduces within us the resurrection life of Jesus. So in this strategy of taking truth from our head to our heart to our life, we've got to start with, we've got to know the truth all of our blessings in Christ, all of what it means to be in, in Christ, then we have to consider that to be true for us. Receive that, and, and not, that's true for me. Then we have to act upon it in obedience, and we have to cultivate habits and disciplines and a lifestyle of obedience. But we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and transform our lives. Let me just close with, with this. This has been a, a thought that I've it's been percolating in my head, and, and uh, I, I, I just offer it as an application here. Luke 
chapter 11, Jesus is talking about prayer. And then Jesus says something phenomenal. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, in, in Matthew chapter 7, he's teaching about prayer, and he, and he kind of says something similar, but he says, if you being evil, how much, uh, how much more will your heavenly Father give whatever you ask? So he's more it's a prayer promise. But in Luke 11, he changes it and says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, I don't think in the context Jesus is addressing any of our modern controversies about the Spirit. He's not talking about some post-conversion experience of the Spirit. He's not talking about the Spirit producing some spiritual gift. He's not talking about the Spirit at the moment of salvation. He's just basically saying, if you ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, He will give you the Holy Spirit. Now, when God gives you the Holy Spirit, that means you get all of who he is and all of what he does. All of who he is and all of what he does. So here in, in Romans 7, and it's going to go into Romans 8, he's talking about how we, we live this out in the power of the Spirit. Here's just a point of application. How about asking the Father every day, even multiple times throughout the day, Father, Jesus said, even when I'm evil, I know how to give good gifts to my children. How much more will you give the Holy Spirit if I ask you? Father, give me the Holy Spirit now. Give me the Holy Spirit now to help me be obedient to Christ. Give me the Holy Spirit now to help me live righteously. Give me the Holy Spirit now to help me bear spiritual fruit. Give me the Holy Spirit now to give me power to be a witness for Christ. Give me the Holy Spirit to live this supernatural life in Christ. Give me the Holy Spirit to transform me to become more like Christ. Give me the Holy Spirit so that I might speak with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Give me the Holy Spirit so that I may have the joy of the Lord in my heart. It's just real simple. We make it really complicated. But Jesus said, God wants to give us the Holy Spirit even more than we want to ask Him for Him. So all we have to do is just, just ask Him. Because we know the truth. We consider the truth to be true for us. We act upon the truth in obedience. We cultivate a lifestyle habit, discipline of obedience, but we do it asking for the help, the power, and the fruit of the Spirit transforming our lives. That's how it just goes from our head to our hearts out into our lives. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we've been able to look at a lot of Scripture this week, truth that, that sets us free. Thank you for all of your blessings, Jesus. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for what it means to be in Christ and have Christ in us. And we pray, we pray that we would be transformed. We'd take these truths to heart and we'd live them out in the power of the Spirit. Ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.